you guys appreciate what these guys do up here on the weekend. Great job, you guys. Thank you. Well, it's good to see everybody. We're uh, back in school starting next week, and all the parents in here set. Amen. All right, great. We're uh, excited about school starting again, and and uh, we're concluding a series this week called Pick Six, where you all pick six topics. They have been some hot topics, like what what does the Bible say about sexuality and. What is uh, what does the Bible talk about when it comes to like uh, other world religions? And my brother came up and talked about Islam. And I mean, we've had all these topics. And today, uh, you all assigned me the topic of why are there so many denominations? I mean, nothing's more fun than that, right? I mean, this is going to be an awesome half hour of your life, and uh, we're excited. No, I, I hope that uh, today, really, when we get into this, you're going to learn more about church history, why we are the way we are, why we do what we do, kind of you're going to have a better understanding about why there are so many different types of churches, you're going to have a better understanding of where our place is in church history, and, and I, I hope it really is not only informative, but it helps you to kind of process all of that with me. And uh, how many of you have ever done the DNA testing for your ancestry? Anybody done that? Raise your hand if you've done that. Anybody find anything interesting in your DNA? You're like, I didn't know I had that in me, and um, my dad's side was pretty normal. My mom's side has some, has some crazies, man. And uh, it didn't show up in a DNA test. I never did that. I just know it from our history. One of, one of my uh, uncles, I think, was a moonshiner, and uh, that's great. And uh, we had another one that was sort of affiliated with the mafia, they, we think, but we're not really sure. Um, we had a Cherokee Indian in our family. It's crazy. We just had all kinds of different stuff in our family, a lot of different things in our history. And maybe you learned some things in your family and uh, when you look through that of your history. But it's good to look back because when you look back, you understand more about who you are. And that's what we're going to do today is look at our spiritual heritage. And then we're going to understand more about who we are as people. And so what I'm going to do is give you kind of a 30,000 foot look at the last 2019 years of church history in 30 minutes or less. All right. And, uh, and, and we're going to look into that. And I'm going to round off some dates so it'll be easy to understand, I hope. We're going to get a good idea by the end about our spiritual heritage. The first thing is in A.D. 30, the church was established. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he said that to a group of his followers. And he said, when, when he said, who do people say that I am? One of his followers named Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're Peter. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, the Catholic Church uses that passage to say that the rock that he was talking about was Peter himself, and that Peter would then be the first pope, and because of that, that would be the rock that he was built on. But we don't believe that's what Jesus meant at all. We believe that what Jesus was saying, that, that the truth that Peter just said, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that on that rock, on the truth of me being Christ, the leader, the, the one who gives his life, on that truth, that's what I'm going to build my church on. And really, the rest of Scripture attests to that. Paul writes in Colossians 1.18 that Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Peter himself one time said about Jesus that the Scripture says, I lay a stone as a foundation in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him, in Christ, will never be put to shame. So even Simon Peter was like, Jesus is the head of the church. And that's what we believe. Now, Peter got up to preach a sermon, Acts chapter 2. It's the very first sermon and the very first day of the church on a day of Pentecost. 
And he gets up and talks to people from a lot of different places around that part of the world. And he says, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And he goes on to explain Jesus as the Messiah, how he was crucified, and how he was resurrected. And verse 41 says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That was the beginning of the church. That was the church in its purest form. Jesus established it. Peter preaches the first sermon. And on the rock of Christ as the leader and the Messiah, he's going to build his church. Now, the, the purpose of the church was simple. Evangelize people that don't yet know Jesus and disciple people so they grow to know him more. All right? And that's still the same purpose today. There were two things that kept the church on track uh, in terms of doctrine and teaching. One was the presence of the apostles. I mean, how many of you know if the apostle Paul was your pastor, you'd be really right squared up, right? I mean, that's just the truth. But and that's what he did in all the New Testament. Read the New Testament letters. Read 1 Corinthians sometimes. Paul is constantly telling the church, get back on track, get back on track. And uh, the second thing that kept it pure is persecution. The people were really threatened with loss of life, job, imprisonment, loss of freedom. People were being killed for their faith, and, and persecution has a purifying effect on the church. Uh, Tim LaHaye tells about a time where there was persecution behind the Iron Curtain, and a group of about 30 Christians were meeting in secrecy in somebody's basement. And all of a sudden, the door burst open, and there were two Russian soldiers with automatic weapons and said, you must renounce Christ and disperse if you don't get out of here in five, in five minutes, you will be shot. What would you do? Some of them left. Others remained, ready to die for Christ. And LaHaye says, the soldiers shut the door, put down their weapons, and said, brothers and sisters, we too are Christians, but we dare not worship with anybody who is not authentic. Can we worship with you? Persecution purifies the church. That was A.D. 30. Well, then along about A.D. 300, the church began to be corrupted. About A.D. 300, the Roman emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. He was so impressed with their dedication. He said, you know what needs to happen? There, need to be, there needs to be all of our Roman soldiers. They all need to be baptized. And history says that many of them were baptized with their arms outside of the water because they still wanted to be able to wield a sword. And so he baptized a lot of them. And, and, and what happened was Christianity became popular. The apostles had died at this point. Persecution was now removed. And remember, not many people had a Bible. It was very expensive to have the copies of the Scripture. We did not have a printing press. And, and so many of them were chained to monasteries in terms of the Scriptures that they had. And so through the corruption of leadership and also the fact that people couldn't check, check their leaders according to the scripture, the church began to get doctrines that were different than what the Bible actually taught. And it's like the game Whisper. If, uh, if I said over here to Andrew, gave him a little, a little whisper, and I said, here's something I want you to share with everybody, and then he goes to Jillian, and it goes all the way around the room, and all the way around the room, and ends up here with Ashley. Do you think the message will be different by the time it gets over there? Well, a lot of what was being taught was taught by word of mouth, and it began to be different. And the church leaders began to change some things, and they began to drift away from the original message of the Bible. Now, how many of you grew up Catholic? Raise your hand if you grew up Catholic, many of you. If you grew up in the Catholic church, many of these doctrines are going to sound familiar because many of them were adopted during this time and in the years to come. One of the indications of erosion, maybe 
A simple one was the Nicene Creed in A.D. 325. This was the first creed. Now, a creed was a simple, succinct statement of belief, but it really was a defining thing. If you didn't believe what I believed, then you couldn't be a part of what I'm a part of. And so they were really man-made statements about what the Bible said. And one would start another group, and they'd have a different creed that went along with that. Many of you grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed as uh, kids. Another indication of erosion was uh, the doctrine of purgatory, and that was introduced at 593 A.D. This teaches that when a Christian dies, the Christian doesn't immediately go to be with God. This doctrine teaches that when a Christian dies, he goes to a place of punishment temporarily to be purged of unconfessed sin in his life. How long you spend in purgatory, well, that depends on the amount of unconfessed sin you have in your life and the amount of people that are praying for you here on this side of eternity. But we don't believe in that doctrine. Why? Because it's not in the Bible. Richard McBride is a professor of theology at Notre Dame, and in his book on purgatory, he says there is, for all practical purposes, no biblical basis for the doctrine of purgatory. He goes on to say there is an obscure passage in the book of Maccabees in the Apocrypha, but the doctrine had its origin with Pope Gregory the Great and was enunciated by the Second Council of Lyons in 1274. Here's the problem with the doctrine of purgatory is that it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach you pay for your own sins. The Bible makes it very clear that Christ paid for all sins all time. And so when we die, we go immediately to be with the Lord if we are in Christ. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just <coughs> to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. We don't pay for our sins. Christ paid for all of them on the cross. When Stephen was dying, he said, Lord Jesus, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he went directly to be with the Lord. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we don't believe in the doctrine of purgatory. It was one of those teachings that the church promoted, but it wasn't grounded in the Scripture. Another doctrine of the Dark Ages indicates erosion of the Bible principle is the doctrine of the papacy. In the Catholic Church, the Pope, the cardinals, the bishops, even the priests are mediators between God and man. Now, in the Old Testament, that concept did exist. There were priests, there were individuals that went on to God on behalf of the people and went to the people on behalf of God. And there was a mediator. And in fact, there was a temple that was created that had what was called the Holy of Holies. It was the inner sanctum. This was a place that only the priest, the high priest, could go once a year to atone for the sins of the people. And it was separated. There was a curtain that separated the normal people and the priest. But when Jesus Christ died, that temple curtain was torn in two, thus indicating that now everyone had access to God. In fact, listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus is our living sacrifice. He is our mediator. We don't need someone else to go to God. We get to go to God on our own behalf through Christ. Jesus is our high priest. 
And that, so congratulations. The Bible also introduces another concept, and that is we're all priests. Can you believe that? Hey, congratulations, guys. It's great. Why? Because there is no clergy and la- laity concept in the Bible, clergy and laity. There's no concept of that. In fact, listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are people that belong to God so that you may declare the praises of, call, who call, of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Jesus is our mediator. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. He is our priest. Well, some other examples quickly of the erosion of doctrine. One is called the doctrine of transubstantiation. It came out about 1000 AD when it was taught that the wafer and the fruit of the vine literally transformed into the body, the blood of Jesus. Now we think it's obvious that Jesus was being symbolic, but the church was beginning to teach that it actually transforms into the body and blood of Christ. And they do that based on a passage that says where Jesus said, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. But I like to describe it uh, like this. If you came to my house today, you would see a picture of my mamma and papaw there. They died in 1995. If, if you saw that picture, I would say, hey, this is my mamma and my papaw. And you know what you would say? You would say, that is not your mamma and papaw. That is merely paper on which an image of your mamma and papaw has been printed. Now, you wouldn't say that, first of all, because that would be rude. And secondly, you wouldn't say it because you know by the context of what I'm saying that I mean that's a picture of my mamma and papa. And when Jesus took the bread and he passed it around the room and he said, this is my body, it was very clear he didn't pass his arm out and say, hey, guys, take a bite. It was the context. And so when we take communion, we know that that is symbolic. In 1015... The church of the Dark Ages began to insist that the priests of the church could not marry. They had to be celibate. That's caused a lot of problems. In 1311 A.D. at the Council of Ravenna, they declared that sprinkling for baptism would be an acceptable substitute, even though originally baptism had been by immersion. And so that's why we go back to that original form. And then came the selling of indulgences. And, and, and this had huge implications for the church. Many of the large cathedrals in Europe were built because of the selling of indulgences. And here's what it was. There would be some type of a fundraiser where I would say, this is a splinter off the original Roman cross. You pay me for that splinter, and I will give you a sheet of paper that gives you absolution from your sins. And by the way, the church still teaches this today. It's just not widely known. And, and through that, then you would receive forgiveness of sins. Well, we know that that is not correct because the Bible is very clear. There is nothing you can do to earn forgiveness of sins except through grace, God's grace and grace alone. And so this was being taught. And at this time, around 1500 A.D., the church went through a process of reformation. About 1500, some godly men began to call upon the church to repent and reform. They, sh- they, they started what, a protest against the corruption of the church. They weren't trying to divide away from the church. They were simply protesting. That's why it's called the Protestant Reformation. One of these men was Martin Luther. In Germany, Martin Luther was studying for the priesthood. He was a brilliant man, began to read the Bible, began to be disturbed with the contradictions between what he read in the Bible and what was being practiced in the church. And so in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, it was a verse that literally... Uh, he focused on, and it says in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. 
a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Luther said, I'm not made righteous by going to church or by saying prayers or buying indulgences. I am, I am made righteous through faith in Christ. And he wrote in the margin of his Bible, faith only, not by works. And then he listed what we'll call 95 disagreements that he had with the church, and he posted it on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel there. And it was very dangerous for him to do this because at this time people were being killed as heretics. But Luther wasn't executed, but he was censored and excommunicated. And therefore then that led to the beginning of the Lutheran church. How many of you come from a Lutheran background? Raise your hand. So now you know your background. Shortly after that, John Calvin, a lawyer in Switzerland, began a similar reform movement, and his movement combined with John Knox, a bold advocate of reform from Scotland, and they formed the Presbyterian Church. And some of you come from that. How many of you came from a Presbyterian background? All right. And then came the Church of England when King Henry VIII asked Pope, the Pope of Rome to annul his marriage to Catherine, his wife, because she wasn't producing any sons. And he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, who was 16 years of age. And to his credit, the Pope of Rome at that time would not annul the marriage. So the king just said, fine, I'll start my own church. So he started his own church so he could marry Anne Boleyn. And he made the Archbishop of Canterbury the head of the church. His marriage was, was annulled. But she didn't produce any sons either, so he executed her. And uh, that was the beginning of the Anglican church. That's your history. And in America, they call it the Episcopalian church. How many of you grew up Episcopalian? That's your history. Well, we're not sure what man to attribute the Baptist church to. Some say Roger Williams. Some say John Smith. How many of you came from a Baptist church background? Raise your hand. Okay. And uh, Baptist really comes from the term Anabaptist, meaning baptized again, because Baptists begin to say, wait a minute, the Bible didn't talk about sprinkling. It didn't talk about infant baptism. Somebody ought to be old enough to believe, and they ought to be baptized by immersion. And so they said, we're going to baptize them again. That's where the name Baptist came from. It became America's largest non-Catholic denomination. One of my favorite reformers is John Wesley because he was so colorful. A lot of great stories about John Wesley. One of the reasons I like him is he was only five feet tall. I'd be a giant next to John Wesley. And uh, it'd be like standing next to the men in El Salvador. When we go down there, those guys are all short, you know. I'm like, here, I'm just an average dude. But in El, El Salvador, I'm like, hey, man, this is awesome. Everybody's like this tall. Well, he began the Wesleyan movement, the Methodist Church in England. And one of his followers, George Whitfield, kind of brought that movement to America. How many of you came from Methodist background or Wesleyan background? Well, all kinds of churches were established. Nazarene, Pentecostal, Church of God. All of these movements each helped to, and wanted to reform the church. And there were godly people in every one of them, but they were divided from each other. And each one had its own creedal statement and its own distinctive doctrine. And while all the reformers had a positive impact, by 1800, the divisions had become so stark that it diminished the church effectiveness because there were different churches all over the place and there was a lot of confusion. If you look at the next slide here, the Reformers had the right intent, the same purpose, but the Reformation led to great division in the church. They were divided by creed, denomination, and doctrine. Why were they divided? They started with their own religious traditions, and then that from there they attempted to reform the church. Martin Luther wasn't trying to break away from the Catholic Church. That's why the Lutherans still have that philosophy that we need to sprinkle children for baptism, or, or he didn't say we need to transubstantiation when it comes to communion. 
it's not actually the body and blood of Christ. It's in its essence the body and blood of Christ. And, but others disagreed with them, and so they started their own next denomination. Next slide. And so, next slide. What we see here as well is the Reformation went back through each practice and said, let's see if we follow this one or if we don't. So there was great division. Well, where did our movement come from? Well, we call it the church restored. About 1800, some godly pioneers in America became concerned about the spiritual impotence of the church and how it was bogged down. One of them was named Thomas Campbell. He was born in Ireland. His father began as a Catholic, and then he was converted to the Anglican church. And Thomas became a teacher, and then he became a preacher in the church that was called the Old Light Anti-Burger Sea Cedar Presbyterian Church. Talk about a big old church sign right there. You know what I'm saying? And I'm guessing this means that there was probably a new light, positive burger, non-seceding Presbyterian church. I don't know, but that's where he was from. And he looks back and he says, there's so many divisions in the church. Why can't we just be Christians only? And he ended up saying, I represent no denomination. I just want to tell you about God and Jesus Christ. Now, ultimately, he sent for his family to come to America. He had traveled to America. And so his wife, uh, Jane, and son, Alexander, began to come to America, but they had a shipwreck. And how many of you know a shipwreck causes you to come back to Christ? And Alexander goes, I think I need to get right with God. And, and he began to think about his relationship with God, and then he began to think about the church and how divided it was. In fact, history says that while Alexander Campbell, Thomas Campbell's son, was at a church in, back where he lived, he went to another city, to another old light, anti-burger, sea cedar Presbyterian church. And he wanted to take communion, but they made him take a test before he took communion. Of course, he passed the test because it was the same denomination. And they gave him a token. And, and history says that when he dropped that token in the plate and it clanked in the plate, that's when he made a decision to say, this is ridiculous. Who should ever have to take a test to take communion? That's why we have what's called an open communion here. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come. The table is a place of invitation for everybody of all stripes who believe in Christ. Well, he began to have the same thoughts that his father did, that we need something different. At the same time, there was another similar movement that sprung up in Kentucky. And Barton W. Stone was a Presbyterian minister. And in Cambridge, Kentucky, they began to be concerned about division as well. And he said, why don't we just go back to the Bible rather than all these creeds and denominational differences? Let's just call ourselves Christians only. And so the goal was, and if you go to the next slide, the goal was instead of going back through the one with the white arrow, wherever that is, yeah, rather than going back through all the practices of the church, let's just go back and see what they did in its purest form. And they began to have a revival in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. They said that as many as 25,000 people came there. That was about one of, one of every eight people in Kentucky was at this revival. And they said the highlight of the revival was when thousands of Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, and so forth, had communion together on a Sunday morning, and the mood was, let's break away from denominations that divide us, and let's unite on Jesus Christ, and let's restore the simple practices of the New Testament. Instead of trying to reform the church, let's go back to the original pattern. And this movement boomed in the 1800s. And it was kind of a non-denominational movement. Well, that kind of a philosophy is carried over into other movements today. But there were two key principles in the Restoration Movement, biblical truth and unity. Let's be true to the Bible, and let's unite all people on the Scripture. 
That's why I love when we go around the room and say, how many of you are Presbyterian, Catholic, Methodist, Baptist? And everybody's like, yeah, me, 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 me. And we go, wow, what are we doing here? We're all coming together as Christians only. Now, at that time, we had some great slogans. We're not the only Christians, but we're Christians only, meaning there are a lot of other Christians in other movements, but we're Christians only in name. The only name we wear is the name that honors Christ. That's the reason our, our church name is Axis Christian Church, and that just means we're just Christians only. Or another phrase, where the Bible speaks, we speak, but where the Bible is silent, we are silent. That means we don't make up man-made doctrines. Some of you grew up in churches like that, you know? You can't, you have to wear a bun in your hair, ladies. That's, that's what the Bible says. Or, or, uh, or you can't wear flip-flops on Sunday morning, amen? I mean, that's out there probably, I don't know. And, uh, or how about, you can't play Uno, I don't know. But there's all these doctrines that people have that are outside the Bible and say, where did that come from? We don't know. So where the Bible is silent, we're silent. Another slogan, in doctrine, unity, in opinions, liberty, but in all things, charity. Another way to say that is in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, love. I know there are differences. One of the things we do in our starting point classes, we list out, here's our essentials. God, Jesus, the Bible, coming to faith in Christ, heaven, hell. But we also give some non-essentials right there in starting point. Why? Because I've learned that churches divide not usually over the big rocks. They usually divide over the smaller things. You know what I'm saying? They divide over music styles, and they divide over paint colors, and they divide over the fact that Josh wore a pink shirt today. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's that kind of stuff. It's like, what is happening? And, and this is the kind of stuff that people argue over and divide over. And we just said from the very beginning, as a movement and also as a church, that we're going to be together, no matter what. And the essentials, we're going to be unified. And by the way, this unity movement really has been a booming kind of movement. It, and it was the fastest growing movement we're a part of, the fastest growing Christian movement in the United States in the 1990s. Now, tragically, no movement is perfect. We, we divided twice. Once over instruments. And around the Civil War, there was a movement that started called the Churches of Christ Non-Instrumental. And they took that phrase, where the Bible speaks, we speak, and where the Bible is silent, we're silent. And they took it to a, a certain level. And they began to say, well, the Bible doesn't mention instruments in the New Testament, so therefore we're not going to have them. And then later in the 1960s, once again, there was a group that came out and said, we don't think you need to be baptized. And that started with a missionary group out of the country that couldn't practically baptize people. And so they said, we're not going to actually baptize people. That doctrine began to infiltrate into the United States. And so they became their own denomination called, and if you ever see this sign, First Christian Church Disciples of Christ, has a little cup and a little chalice and a little cross in there. Well, they became their own denomination. They've struggled with different liberal type issues over the years. But we're part of the independent Christian churches, a movement that just says we want to get back to the Bible. Now, restoration, I say the church restored. How many of you know restoration is never complete? My dad was in old cars, and he restored a 1957 Chevrolet, and guess what? After that thing was restored, guess what happened to it? You had to start maintaining it. And then not only that, it started to gain some rust, and you had to redo the body work again because restoration is a continual process. And we have to constantly check ourselves and say, let's make sure that what we're doing is according to the Scripture. That's why if you ask me any doctrine or belief that we have here, it's not some man-made doctrine by some group outside of this church. 
We just simply say, that's a great question. Let's see what the Bible says about that. And there's just so much health in saying, let's let the Bible be our guide. We have no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no name but the divine name, Christian. Now, let me give you an example of division versus unity, all right? What I'm going to do is call out a church background, and when I say your background, you respond back. So if I say Catholic, if you're Catholic, if you were Catholic growing up, you just shout that out real loud and proud, all right? Here we go. Catholic. Thank you very much. Very good. Now, you set the, you set the bar, all right? Methodist. <laughs> you guys are always so formal. Methodist. Baptist. Baptist. Once again, Baptist. Okay, Church of Christ. Lutheran, Presbyterian, excellent, <laughs> thank you so much for that. Who have I missed? Hedonist, whether it's a hedonist background, a bunch of sinners out here, hey, that was my background, you're like, that was me, I, that was terrible. All right, now I want you to do another thing. On the count of three, I want you just to say your church background all together, all right, you ready? One, two, three, Christian. One, two, three, Christian. All right, now what I want, that just sounded awkward, didn't it? Now here's what I want you to do. On the count of three, we're just going to say together the name of Jesus. All right, one, two, three, Jesus. A little bit softer, one, two, three. A little bit softer, one, two, three. There is something about the name of Jesus that brings us together. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He makes us one when we come together. I'm not asking you to join another denomination or to sign a creed, but to give allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. He is the banner under which we unite. Sunday school teacher once was concerned because there was a little boy, a visitor, who came to Sunday school, first time there, and he was missing his arm. And she was concerned maybe the other students would make fun of him, but she was so pleased. Nobody called attention to his disability until the teacher herself forgot. And at the end of class, in one of those moments where she's trying to fill the time because the preacher's long, she says, let's close with that little exercise. Can we, guys? Here's the church, and here's the steeple, and open the doors, and here are all the people. And then suddenly she remembered, oh, no. And she was embarrassed because she had maybe maybe called this child out a bit because he couldn't do it. But she was spared an, apolo- or spared an apology when a little girl next to the little boy reached out with her hand and put her hand with his hand and said, here, here, let's build the church together. And friends, we are all disabled. We are all sinful. We are all imperfect. But when we exalt Jesus Christ, we use the gifts he has given us. We can build the church with his help. The church will build we will build together. And the world will say, behold, how they love one another. This is what the Bible says about us as we work together in Ephesians 4. Speak the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body, joined together and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We are one in Christ. God, we thank you so much for loving us. Thank you, God, for how you have led the church. And every church has its uniqueness. Every church out there, God, has its own uh, structure, its own kind of emphasis. God, I'm just thankful to be able to say that um, to the best of our ability, God, we just want to be as true to Scripture as we can. And we're not perfect in that. Uh, we, We seek the Word as our guide. 
the Holy Spirit to lead us. And God, I pray that we would be able to unite people behind that. Whether they have no belief at all and they come in for the first time and they find this to be a place of love and transparency and grace. Or God, maybe they came from a different background. They said, well, I believe a lot, of, a lot of different things. I don't know why I believe what I believe. I, I didn't even really know the scripture. God, help us to be a Bible teaching church. Help us to be a church that focuses on your word. Help us to be a, fo- a church that focuses on Jesus and lifts him up. And God, as we do that, I pray that it would unite us together. And I pray that it would make a big difference in this community as people see that we're just not another thing. We just seek to, to be a, a true to your word, God. True to what you've taught. And God, help us in that process to win more and more people to that belief, faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that in your name.